Amen. If you would please stand as we enter into scripture this morning, if you can. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes 7, um, for whatever reason, which I think, to me at least, has made itself known. Um, We needed 7 more than we needed 5 and 6 this week, so there you have it. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 7, I'm going to read down to verse 13. A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not why were the former days better than these. For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Lord. Father, as we just come before you, stir our hearts to hear what you have to say today, Lord. May you lay the seed that needs to be laid in our hearts and our spirits today as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Titled it this week, pretty simple. Consider this, consider this. And kind of wondered why as I sat down. I had a few sermons in chapter 5, a few sermons in chapter 6, and just felt led to kind of jump over 5 and 6, you know, Monday and Tuesday and dig into 7. For whatever reason... We, we tackle uncomfortable things. I'm not always a fan of that, but there you have it. This is the direction we're going to go. So again, we've titled it very simply, Consider This. Keep that in your heart and your mind as we dig into this, because in looking at chapter 7 this week, we find that the battle between choosing wisdom over folly is what we're challenged to do. The challenge we face each day in choosing God's way over our own, most especially in times when we don't understand what's going on and why things have happened the way they have. And as we move on in this morning, looking toward more of the struggle, and this is what I think is very important for us, in keeping the balance in life's ebbs and flows, within our lives, keeping the balance, and then the wrestling with the now and the not yet of God's promises, the things he says he's going to promise to us that have yet to come to pass, how it is we keep those and hold on to those. And I want us to walk through this chapter pretty intentionally in the first 13 verses, although it's going to take us two weeks to do so because we're probably only going to get as far, I think, as verse 6 or 7 this morning. But it's important that we, we take a look at these things, most especially in light of a balanced life before the Lord. And I found myself looking at verse 13 this particular week, which is a um, reminder of chapter 1 in verse 15. It's, it's a theme that you see every once in a while popping up in Ecclesiastes. And we find in the first chapter, verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. It's an encouraging verse, isn't it? But it's there, nonetheless, there we have it. Well, the writer here returns to the same type of theme, 
But this time here in chapter 7, he challenges the reader with something. He doesn't just make the statement and move on. He challenges us when he says, consider the work of God. It's important. He's asking us to do something. And then he continues, who can make straight what he has made crooked? Now, you look at that, and it takes a little bit to try and make sense of that verse, and that's what we're going to take most of our time to do, because the preacher here continues to wrestle with the ways of this world, how it is we can, we can live within its crookedness and all he seems to have experienced in his life that he's recording for us here, knowing all the while that it is God's good creation that we live in. But it is very hard at times to reconcile within ourselves how it is we have become so wrong when he has blessed us so much and how it is that all is going to work itself out. See, it stood out for me this week. For whatever reason, it seems clear that Solomon or the preacher as he is known or the fancy Hebrew word that don't ask me to pronounce because I'll get it wrong. But Solomon here understands that the world is crooked and that it can't be fixed. He knows that to be the case, and that seems to be a frustration to him, as it is for every human being. I know it is for every Christian as we wake up every morning and we look for the damage report, and we need to see exactly what it is we haven't got right today. Surprisingly enough, those who are non-believers as well know that the world is inherently broken, and we are trying to figure out a way in which to fix it. The problem is, is we find ourselves becoming cynical and pessimistic when we seek to fix this world without the blessing and the covering of God and the wisdom that comes from him. And that's part of what Solomon wants to lead us into. Because when we look at verse 13, he tells his readers that the crooked ways are actually what? The work of God. What do you do with that? That caused me to ask the question, really? Really? Because statements like that, I have to tell you, reinforce for me my confusion. I'm not the most intelligent person on the planet, but statements like that confuse me a little bit. How it is we straighten out what he has made crooked? The answer to that question is what? You can't do it. No one can straighten out what was crooked. Why? Because it, it seems to me here that what he is saying is that if we try to straighten out what was made crooked, we actually find ourselves wrestling through with God on how to fix what needs to be fixed. So I sat back in my chair in a little bit of frustration, and I was wondering exactly what's going on here. There has to be something more than just skipping the rock across the pond with this particular verse and what's being said here. Left alone like that, taken off the page, and just parked all by itself, we find ourselves absolutely helpless in the journey that God has us on, from the time we are born until the time we die. We, we are helpless to do anything or to fix anything in this life. And that's true. Unless, of course, God. Unless, of course, God. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I go to Paul's letter to the Romans, and especially chapter 8, because that's very helpful to us here this morning, chapter 8 in particular. Why? Because what Paul does for us is he defines for us the hope that we have in the midst of a seemingly hopeless endeavor of getting from birth to death and trying to straighten things out all on our own. And he tells us this, starting in verse 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. We're starting somewhere. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. These four verses are a mouthful, so here we go. For God has done... What the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, 
in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What's Paul telling us there? Okay, that's a huge amount of stuff. We could take forever doing that, which is why we didn't get to verse 13 today and won't. But verse 3 tells us something here. What? For God has done. It's important to pick up on those things. Every word is important for us as we wrestle this through. That becomes profound and very important for us. We cannot fix our own problems. We cannot fix what is crooked, and as Solomon puts it, make the crooked way straight. We cannot do that on our own. It's an observation Solomon has, but he's trying to wrestle out exactly what that looks like and how it is we're supposed to get to where we need to be. We cannot fix the problems of this world, not on our own. That's what Paul is saying here. Why? Because we are the problem with this world. We are the problem with this world. I'd love to be able to skip over stuff like this because I have to spend all week in this stuff. You just have to put up with me for 35, 40 minutes on a Sunday. And it's hard enough to have to just deal with this all week long. We cannot fix the brokenness in this world. Now, the thing is, is that if you were to ask somebody, we know this in our head. How many of you here know we cannot fix what's broken in the world? Okay, we all know that. But how hard do we continue to try and fix the broken in the world? We still do. We know in our heads that we can't do it. But it's not our heads that's the issue. The Bible's pretty clear for us. It's our hearts that are the issue. Our hearts are the problem. God, in his goodness, lets us continue in our crooked ways until the time that Jesus came in order to put to death, death itself, and deal with sin. That's the whole point of what's going on here. You see, our hearts have been weakened by the flesh. That's what Paul's telling us. We don't have the capacity or the ability to do the things that we're required to do. Some translations call that the sinful nature. You see, left to ourselves, we can't even do what we know we ought to do, even though we try so very hard. It's like a little pug in your living room chasing his tail. He'll do that until he falls over and passes out, because he's never going to catch that tail. We can't do even what we know we ought to do. Paul says in chapter 7, verse 18 of Romans chapter 7, For I know nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So I know that I'm broken. I even know what I'm supposed to do right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. He then goes down to 24, and he says this, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he gives us the answer. Thanks be to God, through Christ Jesus, our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God in my mind, but in my flesh I serve the law of sin. So you see, God, who in his grace and in his mercy, let us continue in foolishness, let us continue in the crooked ways, in order that he, by his covenant promises and his covenant plan, fixes our crookedness, himself so we don't even need to do it we just need to admit that we can't and ask him to take care of it for us you see that's what we see in Romans chapter 8 verses 3 and 4 so we see in all of Romans 8 actually God sent his son why he sent Jesus because he promised all the way back at the beginning of the mess when Adam and Eve messed everything up all the way back at the beginning, he knew that they would never be able to find their way home, that we would never be able to find our way home. And he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I love that verse because it's the very first time in Scripture that the promise of God 
says that what you have broken, my children, I will fix. And Satan, serpent, snake, whatever, you think you've won the battle. Even right to the end, you're going to think you've won, but he's going to crush your skull. He's going to crush your skull. So while he punished Adam and Eve and all who came after, at the same time, he promised he would fix what we broke. And once we establish that and understand that, we're in a much better place to understand what's going on here because one of the prime reasons for Romans and chapter 8 in particular is to remind us that we are just broken clay pots and we are absolutely helpless to help ourselves. And as weird as this sounds, I am encouraged in that. I'm encouraged in that. Because in Christ, two words, there are probably two of the most beautiful words you can say. In Christ. That's the key. That's the difference. That becomes an entirely different story. Not only that, but we are challenged by him through the Holy Spirit to live in him, in this world, on his behalf, helping to straighten out all of the crookedness within this world. Because it's only the power of the Holy Spirit that allows us to do the things that we're supposed to do. God could have wiped out the whole world and started all over again, but he didn't. He made the way for us to come back home. That's how valuable you are to him. So valuable we all are. So what on earth does that really ultimately have to do with chapter 7 in Ecclesiastes? Well, if you remember last week, humor me a little bit, I reminded you that what he was starting to do in chapter 4 was he was beginning to show us how to live in light of the now and not quite yet promises of God what it is supposed to look like as we live out what God calls us to in this world. And he's doing it again this week as he contrasts a life led by wisdom and a life that is led by folly. But he does it in a very uncomfortable way. At least he does so from my point of view in a very uncomfortable way. He looks at death and he looks at life. A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. How is that better? How is a day of death better than a day of birth? It's an awkward way of looking at things, but he's purposeful in it. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. And the better way to say that is the sadness of face, or the, sadness of face the heart is made or put right. I, I was unsettled with how can the sadness of face make the heart glad. So I did some research on that, and it's actually better if it was translated that the heart is put right. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth or the house of laughter and partying and the who cares, you know, live, eat, drink, be merry today, for tomorrow we die. That's where the fool resides. See, Solomon considers life and death, seriousness and silliness, and that a balanced life in the midst of all of that from your birth to your death, in the dealing with life and death, the seriousness of life and the silliness of life, he, he, he sees within that a balanced life and understanding and knowing that for everything that is going on, there is a time and there is a season for what it is you are dealing with. You will not be in that season forever, nor will that time be upon you forever. But he understands that in the midst of that, a balanced life of wisdom before the Lord, being led by the Holy Spirit, is everything and it is the best way in which we are to live. So even in the worst of moments, we can trust that Christ has a hold of us. And that it is for a season. How one handles these moments reveals the heart, doesn't it? 
It's kind of like a soda can. You kick it, and what comes out of it? Soda. Usually, if you hit something hard enough, whatever's inside of it's going to come out. So how we handle these moments in our life reveals our hearts, doesn't it? Are we full of wisdom, or are we full of folly? How is it we respond to the different things that go on? Does Solomon see the fickle life? This is a question I asked, and I think it's good for us to wrestle with. Does Solomon see the fickle life, a life spent in idleness and laughter, a folly? It seems so. But does that mean that we are stuck walking around like we're sucking on lemons and we're the most miserable people in the world? It's really encouraging when you run into somebody like that and they want to tell you about Jesus. I don't want anything to do with that. So are we called to that? Does that mean that we aren't supposed to laugh ever? Does that mean that we aren't supposed to enjoy God's good world when we wake up in the morning and we hear the birds singing and we see the flowers outside and we see the beautiful sunshine and we can take a look at the Adirondacks across the lake? Do we look at that and go, No. That's not what he's talking about. But what this does mean is that we are to recognize the times that we find ourselves in, the seasons that we find ourselves in in life, and to act accordingly. Sometimes in life we're a little bit better than others. And then there's sometimes in life for some families here this morning where it's not all that great. But God is still God. And this causes me to think this through. And again, this was this is interesting to me. I, I hope it causes you to think as well, the solemnity of death. And the way we tend to avoid the simple words funeral service. Just let that sink in for a minute. Maybe you don't, and that's okay. If you don't, that doesn't mean the rest of the world doesn't either. But for the most part, we tend to avoid talking about death. We tend to avoid calling it a funeral service. Instead, we call it what? A celebration of life. I'm not being unkind. I'm not being hurtful. But you know, to process death or anything in life properly helps us to move forward and live rightly in a balanced life which means we don't avoid the pitfalls and the pains when we have loss. We deal with it. We prayerfully deal with it. We, we, we walk in stride with the Holy Spirit and what it is he's trying to show us. You see, and we do that if we are in Christ with eternity in view. This is how we handle everything in life, with eternity in view. If God has set that in our hearts, as he tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11, he says this, he has made what? Everything beautiful in its time. Now let that rest in the context of that chapter and then in the context of this book because guess what that means? If he has made everything beautiful in its time, this includes the death of his people. Now I hope you're uncomfortable because I don't want to be alone. But what he says in Psalm 116 and verse 15 is beautiful to me, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Not because we we take joy in somebody dying, but because if you are in Christ, there's so much more that's going on. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to end. So if he has set that in our hearts, it's for a reason. If we have eternity set in our hearts, we are markedly different than any other creature on planet Earth. If eternity is set in our hearts, we are self-aware and we are looking at what it means to exist. Why are we here? So if he has set it in our hearts, it is for a reason. And that reason is why it is we have hope. Why it is we have hope. It is not the final act. 
Death itself is no longer the final act in life. We don't live, eat, breathe, die, be buried, and then that's the end of it, and then we're off into oblivion. That is not what the Bible tells us. It is merely the end of our pilgrimage here on earth. So when we look at it that way, we understand in the midst of the pain and the struggle and the loss, as we say goodbye to those who we love, we have to understand that it is just merely the end of their pilgrimage here on earth, which is why it is so important that we understand to be in Christ means so much more than just three points in a prayer, and then we go about our own business. See, Moses reminds us in our opening reading this morning that we're to take stock and we're to keep that in view, doesn't he? He says, teach us to number our days that we gain a heart of what? Folly? No, wisdom. That we may gain a heart of wisdom. Understand the time and the season, where we find ourselves. This is especially true as God works his sovereign will out within your life. It is especially true as he does that. You see, how we grieve, how we grieve helps us to move forward in a healthy way. How we deal with death, how we deal with birth, new life, the end of life, helps us to move forward. We can grieve, and we are supposed to grieve, in fact. We can mourn, and we are supposed to mourn. There is a time and there is a season for that. We can be broken, and there's going to be a time where we're all walking in brokenness, and we can be sad, but we know that there is more to life than just being born and then to die. You see, the cynic and the pessimist tries to figure out life Outside of that truth, it would make me bitter as well. I suspect it would probably make you. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 15, is very helpful here. It's one of the two places that Paul paints a gorgeous picture for us of the second coming of Jesus. So when we take a look at this, he says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. See, the question was, is what about those who have died and Jesus hasn't come back yet? What's the deal with them? He says, we, are, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. It's not the end of everything. So if you've lost somebody, it's not the end of everything. Because when Jesus comes a second time, he's going to bring those who have died in him with him. That's a promise of scripture. That's what Paul says. That you may not grieve as others who have hope. He's giving them this as an encouragement to understand that we have hope. A life lived outside of God and his promises to you and me is a life of foolishness. It's what Solomon is talking about. And Paul tells us here in 1 Thessalonians that it is a life without hope. A life lived outside of God and his promises. And it ends up being what we discover in Ecclesiastes. It's just a folly. It's a chasing after the wind. All is vanity. That's where that comes from. Because there is not balance in somebody's life. So why do we hope? Why do we hope? With the world that just spins out of control? Or why is it we hope or even have hope in this life? Why would we do that? Well, you see, Paul explains that death is not the end. Nothing is more sad to me than listening to somebody tell me that I'm going to live 60, 70, 80 years. They're going to put me in the ground. I'm going to become worm fodder. And then that's it. That pains me. 
No, death isn't the end. How do we know that? Because of the risen King Jesus. He walked out of the tomb and killed death itself. When the enemy thought he had him right by the heel, tacked to the tree, Jesus himself, through death itself, killed death. And in that, we have hope. So those who mourn death, knowing that our king conquered death itself in the resurrection, mourn correctly. We are sad in the right way. Death isn't the end of all things. We face death, we deal with it, and the sure hope of being raised again in the last days when Jesus returns. That is the hope of the church. That's the hope of the church. And we can do so because God has made the crooked ways straight through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And it is in the power of the Holy Spirit now who indwells us and equips us and encourages us to walk rightly and walk in the new way of redemption in Christ. New creation life. The morning in that garden that Jesus walked out of that tomb, nothing has ever been the same. Because the reality of this world is that when somebody's dead, they stay dead. The problem was is he didn't. So there needs to be an answer for that. The world hasn't been the same. All who die in Christ shall live again. Looking at life and death soberly and properly helps us to live right now before God in the present time. Understanding that we're in times and seasons. Sometimes we're in full joy and sometimes we struggle. Why? Because we have eternity in our hearts and in our minds. And our goal is to live in a way that pleases God the Father through Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. All because of what he did for us in and through Jesus. We don't have to worry any longer. See, he is the one who is going to keep us straight. And he is the one who keeps us having a proper view, not only of this world, but of ourselves. So I encourage you, the biggest problem you're going to run into Monday through Sunday is the person looking back at you in the mirror in the morning as you're brushing your teeth. Now, perhaps that isn't for you, but I can tell you it is for me. I'm the biggest problem I face every day. Being self-reflective before the Lord is very helpful. And Solomon goes on to wrestle with how foolish the fool is in light of the wisdom of God and that he wants to freely give us. And I found this verse interesting. It says, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Oh, we need that today. We need that today. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This is also a vanity. That's kind of weird. Solomon paints some really good pictures. So the best way I could figure this out was, we used to go camping. And my son, Jonathan, he would disappear into the woods. And he would come back with these big sheets of that white birch bark that would peel off the trees and it would fall onto the forest floor. And it was a real fun thing to him, stack it up next to the fire and then just put one sheet at a time on the nice fire that we got going. Now, if any of you have seen this and done this before, you know where I'm going with this. What does it do? It takes a minute or two to catch because it smolders and it smokes and then it smokes some more and then you got to back away from the fire and wonder why he put it on there. But the minute it catches, you got to kind of hold it because it wants to float away. It just ignites, and it lights up the whole campsite, and sparks fly everywhere, and it pops, and it crackles, and it does all of that stuff for about 12 seconds. And then you end up with nothing but a little tiny pile of ash as if it never even existed. 
The fire that we had that was set up with nice hard wood is still slowly burning. It may not be as bright, but it is still steady. It is still slowly burning. Like a flash in the pan, there in a minute, and like another flash, there it's gone. That's the way of a fool. That's what Solomon is saying here. The crackling of thorns under a pot burns bright and quick, but it doesn't really have much of an impact. That's a fool in his laughter. That's a fool in his laughter. Solomon tells us, don't be like that. Why? Well, one commentator puts it this way, and then we're going to be done. He says this, the point seems to be that a fool's laughter has no connection with reality and is irritating. Okay, that helps me. Also, as to why it is, you know, people get irritated with me. Thistles provide quick flames, little heat, and a lot of unpleasant noise. Just like a fool. We have the worship team. See, wisdom gives us hope. We can continue on, and we will continue on, but when we consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked? The only answer is God can. And he has allowed us to continue in the way in which we have in order that he can fix that and save us and bring us back to himself because we cannot fix it ourselves. Wisdom gives us hope. Hope in the assurance that Jesus, our risen king, has straightened all that is crooked. And he has. And he's calling each and every one of us to come home to him. Our high calling is to walk in the way in which he shows us through the power of the Holy Spirit. See, a balanced life with all of its ups and downs, and even death and sorrow, and even struggling with the changes that we go through in life is still the best life. Why? Because it is a life lived under the umbrella of God himself, staying true to the promises that he has given us, that in Christ, all is forgiven. In Christ, we are made straight. In Christ, we are made whole. And in Christ, he will show us the way. And in that, we have hope because he's going to come back and he's going to set everything right and all that was broken will no longer have its way. We could stand. Fathers, we just prepare our hearts to close in song here this morning. Sometimes I confess, Lord, your word weighs heavy. But I know also in the midst of that, the covenant that you made with Abraham was done in such a way that it told Abraham that if he did everything he was supposed to, he would still be blessed by you. But even if he did something wrong, you would be the one to take the punishment for the wrong that he did in order that Abraham could be right. And we stand in that type of covenant, Lord, this morning. We stand before you because of what Jesus did for us. All of the crooked ways of this world, all of the foolish things that we have ever done in life, Lord, all of the ways in which we have gone down wrong paths, even with good motives, Lord. Your grace is enough for us. 
your mercy has been extended over us. And you sent Jesus to fix everything that we broke. And it was never a consideration of whether we deserved it or not. It was because we are children. Because you love us so deeply that you were willing to send Jesus. And Jesus was so obedient to you that he was willing to come. Step into our world and be just like us in order that he could show us what it meant to live rightly before you. And then we killed him. Which was your plan all along. In order that he may walk out of the tomb. And we could have our way home. Wherever this word finds you this morning as we close in this last song, I want to encourage you. There are people around to pray. Step out. Or you can even stay right where you are. We can repent before the Lord and we can give thanks to the Lord whether we're standing in a seat, whether we're up front, wherever. Whatever makes you most comfortable. But I would pray that if there's something you need to give over to the Lord and ask forgiveness for, I would challenge you to do that this morning. If there are things that you want to give thanks to him for because he has shown himself worthy of that thanks. And just getting your feet over the edge of the bed this morning is something that we can give thanks for. But if he has been working in your life through the people around you, through your circumstances, lift that up to him and thank him because today is a good day to be in Christ. And if you're here and you have never stepped into that relationship, I would challenge you this morning. Seek out this Jesus. Ask him to prove himself to you and he will do so. Give your life over to him. Begin to walk in that way that is full of wisdom and peace even in the midst of our struggles. Lord, we give you thanks today for this. For a beautiful day as we close in song, Lord, stir our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.